you would turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. We are in the uh, pivotal chapter, if you will, that sort of summarizes the context of what's happening in the book of Esther as a whole. It's also one of uh, the most beloved passages, I think, in the book of Esther. Certainly familiar to most of you, but we're going to read it again. Uh, maybe we have some new insights to meditate upon this morning uh, to turn our faith toward Christ. Uh, Esther chapter 4, we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 17. When Mordecai learned <clears throat> all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lying in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. Father, we um, ask that you would give us, again, this wisdom from heaven, the wisdom that is from above, Lord, to help us to know how to live and in the days that we find ourselves in. We know that we have been brought to this kingdom, to this nation for these uncertain times. We, we pray, Father, you would help us to know what is our role. Both here in the church and in our families and our neighborhoods and our community, pray as well, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, your throne in the midst of all of this. That we would not forget 
uh, the sovereignty of our God uh, in the midst of unchanging times. Lord, we, we do pray that you would give us faith to believe in Christ Jesus and repentance of sin as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Can you imagine the sudden fear that they would have felt? Hundreds of thousands of Jews throughout the Persian Empire waking up to the news that on a very specific day in the near future, their co-workers, their neighbors, and even their friends would be legally called upon to kill, annihilate, and to destroy not only them, but their children as well. That's literally the news that they woke up to that day. It was not some long, drawn-out legislative process that had been passed. It was not some... Supreme Court rule that had changed overnight. It was the doing of one man, one very bitter and angry man who hated the Jews, and then also one very disinterested and debauched king who gave him his signet ring to do with it whatever he pleased. Of course, the Jews weren't privy to all the details. They didn't know what had happened, although they knew that their lives now hung in the balance. And while Haman and the king are leisurely imbibing one more drink, the world seems turned backwards toward darkness and confusion, and the Jews were all fearful of their lives. Not all that different uh, than other times in history, surprisingly, sadly. I think of uh, the Nazi regime, a particular nights that took place on the 9th and 10th of November 1938 in Germany, uh, later known as the Kristallnacht, meaning crystal night. The reason why it was called that, because on that particular night, a lot of broken glass occurred when paramilitary soldiers along with a number of other Nazi Germans went into the homes and schools and hospitals to raid them all to find the Jews. A thousand synagogues were burned in two days. 7,000 Jewish businesses were destroyed. A hundred Jewish men were killed for resisting, whereas 30,000 others were immediately taken captive and brought to concentration camps. Now, as bad as those events would seem to be, and they certainly were, what made it all the worse was the fact that they had their friends, their German friends, their German neighbors, who stood by and watched it happen and did not speak up, did not say a word because they were just as afraid and did not know what to do. How would you respond to events like this? How would you respond? Even we just read in Acts again, uh, persecution breaks out upon the whole church in Jerusalem. In a very short period of time, the tables are turned and now Christianity is considered illegal. What would you do? I, I imagine most of us would be numb when we first heard the news and then we might feel quite anxious, quite fearful, not knowing, what, what, what can I do? It just seems overwhelming. It makes me think of the, the hymn, this is my father's world. You know, you normally think about creation and all that. But there's this one line in there that, that sticks out to me every now and then when we sing it. The wrong seems off so strong. And we often seem so weak in comparison. When Mordecai hears the news of this devastating edict, he immediately tears his clothes. You ever torn your clothes out of anguish? Can you imagine being that anxious? and upset to tear your clothes? I only think of the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk tearing his clothes. I don't even know if I could tear my clothes if I had to. But he's so upset. 
it's the natural reaction. He's beyond belief in anguish and fear and mourning. He's lamenting and, and, and has every right to do so in the same way in every province. Again, this is not just in uh, Susa in the capital of Persia, but everywhere, including Jerusalem itself, people are hearing the same news and they also begin to respond with great mourning, weeping, lamenting, also putting on sackcloth and ashes. Again, very appropriate response to this very appalling news. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.4, there is a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. This was certainly that time. The same way there's also a time to ask those heart-ached questions. How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked exult over us? How long, O God, before You judge their evil deeds? These are questions that believers have been asking and asking in every generation. But there's also a time to laugh. A time to dance. A time to rejoice and to give thanks for when God has reversed the tide and has given us a reprieve and has heard our prayers and has in a moment done something wondrous. I, I, I try not to get political too often as a pastor, but I can tell you when I heard the news of Roe v. Wade, we were still in Alabama after our Christian conference and I was with David and Nate, and Nate said, I think they just overturned Roe v. Wade. And my initial reaction was my heart sank. Not because I was upset, but because immediately I'm like a chess player. I'm thinking, okay, well, what's the next move? What's the next move? You know, immediately I'm, I'm getting dark in my mind. Okay, well, what do we have to do now? And what are we going to face now? But I didn't take time immediately to go, praise God, finally. I think I told you before, I was in my mother's womb when Roe v. Wade was passed. In the second trimester, right on the edge of the third trimester. In a moment, my mother woke up to the news. She could abort me if she wanted to. That has angered me since the day I was born. Thank God. That's, that's been overturned. But could this moment be overturned? That's the question. This moment in history and in the life of Israel, could it be overturned? Could God again do the unexpected and, and do this divine reversal? Even though we know the end of the story, Mordecai does not. Esther does not. The rest of the Jews have no idea what's going to happen. So clearly, it's a time to mourn. It's a time to fast. So most of the Jews are putting on sackcloth and ashes which is strange because most people put on sackcloth and ashes after a disastrous event has occurred. They're doing it before it occurs. But the reason why they're doing it before it occurs is because the law of the Medes and Persians seems unalterable, unchangeable. It cannot be broken. This is what's going to happen. And yet, is it? Because that same hymn, though the wrong seems off so strong, how's the rest of it go? God is the ruler yet. That's what we forget. That's what Mordecai and Esther need to learn. It's the same lesson that we need to learn again and again every time we go through these cycles of darkness and foolishness in our country. 
Sadly, it's a lesson completely lost on the wicked altogether because while the Jews are fasting and lying in sackcloth and ashes, Haman and the king are feasting. They're drinking. They're sitting in their royal robes and enjoying more of their lotions of milk and honey to hydrate their skin. Literally, that's what they did back then. They thought that was kind of cool. Clear contrast between the suffering of the innocent and the comfort of the king and his entourage in the palace, which places Esther in a very unusual situation because she's aligned with the king, right? While Mordecai is sitting in dust and ashes, Esther is inside the palace undergoing another round of beauty treatments, right? Being anointed with expensive perfumes, having her face painted with a wide variety of cosmetics, enjoying the lap of luxury in whatever weird place she's in. Apparently, Esther is the only living Jew in the city of Susa who has not heard the news. Every other Jew knows about it. They're all mourning. They're all weeping. They're all fasting. She's sequestered inside the king's harem, completely ignorant of the lives of the common man. No idea what's going on. And that's my purpose. The king doesn't want them to know, generally. He doesn't want to potentially disrupt the happiness of the women who are meant to bring him happiness. You don't want to get them discouraged. You don't want them sad. You want them happy. And so, why share this news with them? But Mordecai made a point of expressing his mourning just outside the city gates, uh, just outside the gates of the king's palace, so that he could be seen by the queen, or at least by someone who knows the queen. Normally, no one would be allowed into the gates of the palace who's mourning, who's weeping. It should tell you something about the leadership of nations when they want to live in this false world where people are only happy all the time. You know, people that are constantly trying to make rules on our behalf think that we're all happy, and we're not. But yet they don't hear about that. Somehow they, you know, disconnect. Well, that's what's going on. He doesn't want to hear. The king doesn't want to hear of anyone's sadness. And if you think about it, when you read the book of Nehemiah, it's the same way. When Nehemiah had heard of the bad number of events that had taken place in Jerusalem and how the gates were still uh, in rubble, the, the walls had still not been rebuilt, he's sad, he's weeping, he's praying on behalf of the people in Israel, and yet he's very careful not to show his sadness before the king. Somehow the king reads his face anyway, and uh, immediately wants to know why his face is melancholy, which makes Nehemiah afraid, the Scripture says, because he knows he's not supposed to be afraid in the king's presence because the king doesn't want to hear these things. You don't want to upset the king. And it seems Esther had sort of imbibed this philosophy. You know, she's been a part of the palace for a number of years now, and she has, you know, towed the line. You don't make the king upset. We don't want to be upset. Everyone's happy. Just be happy. And so when she hears that Mordecai is upset and has ripped his clothes and has put on sackcloth, she immediately wants to buy him new clothes. Just be happy. Literally, that's what, she's, that's what she's doing. She has no idea what's happened. She has not heard the news. She doesn't ask him what's happened. Instead, she says, here's some new clothes. Put them on. Stop being so down. No reason for that. Of course, Mordecai doesn't do what she wants. 
And so they're at an impasse, at least temporarily, because Mordecai cannot come into the palace because of his sadness. Esther cannot leave the palace because of her status, so they can't talk. So Esther calls upon her trusted eunuch, Hatak, to be a mediator between the two of them. So much of the information that we receive in this chapter is actually being told twice, but the narrator is trying to not make us read it two or three times like we often have to do in Chronicles and other places. He cuts to the chase, tells us exactly what's happening, but literally this is being spoken again and again through this mediator, Hatak. And when Mordecai refuses to change his clothes, Esther sends this eunuch for the first time to ask him, okay, so what's going on? Why won't you put on the new clothes? What are you so upset about? And so Mordecai shares with him the news, gives him a copy of the edict itself to share with the queen, and then says to him, to her, uh, that she needs to go and, and beg the favor of the king to overturn this. Now, we don't know how Mordecai knows all the details of exactly how much the sum of money that Haman had promised, but again, Mordecai just happens to be in the right place at the right, right time. He has his ear to the ground, is able to share this information. He then gives again the command to tell her, go, plead on behalf of your people. Of course, what that means is he's telling Esther to go against the counsel he's given her all along of not revealing who she is, not giving her identity, not telling about her heritage. Now he's saying, I want you to tell them everything. Tell them who you are so that he will take mercy upon the whole race of people and not just you. These were desperate times. Call for desperate measures. And Esther still has a card to play in the game, it seems, right? So the eunuch Hatak goes and tells Esther all that Mordecai says. It doesn't take her much time to send a response back informing him of how the politics in the kingdom really work. You don't understand, Mordecai. <laughs> doesn't work that way. Esther may not know what's happening in the real world, but she certainly knows what her place is in the pecking order in the palace of the king. She says in verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Now, as crazy as that might seem to us that the king would even potentially put his own wife to death for coming before him uncalled, uh, it's not just the Bible that teaches this. Josephus, ancient Jewish historian, uh, says in describing the Persian kings that it was regularly regular that they would indeed have a number of men surrounding them that would hold axes in their hands to, you know, chop down anyone who comes into his presence. There's actually some artwork in another ancient city, Persepolis, which is also one of the capitals of Persia. There is a painting of a guy holding that axe ready to chop off the head of anybody who comes into his presence. Again, I don't know if I would want to be that king, having all those guys with axes surrounding me, especially with all the... Uh, later, we find out, I told you before, he is killed by one of his closest people. So, um, But at that time, he didn't trust anyone, and so um, there's a way to keep that from happening. Now, if you think about it, you think, well, surely he wouldn't do that to his own queen, right? Come on. Maybe some crazy guy who walks in, but not his own wife. Well, <clears throat> if you think about it, we're never really told exactly what happened to Vashti. Do you notice that? 
You go back to the first chapter when the edict goes out that simply says this, Vashti would never again come before the king. That's the edict. doesn't say, well, you know, she goes back to the harem, she goes to prison, she's exiled from the land. It just says she will never come back. Is the edict being cryptic on purpose? Kings get what they want. Uh, she, she really caused him much shame by the fact that she didn't come when he called her to in front of all of his men he's trying to impress. Maybe Esther knows something that we don't because she's afraid. She doesn't want to go before the king because she's thinking, I have no idea where I stand. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, again, whatever you've been told, this is not the love story that you've been led to believe. This is not a, a, a great romance between the king and Esther at all. In fact, there's a very important detail that she adds in the latter part of verse 11. Don't miss it. She says, And as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now what does that have to do with anything? Well, basically that means that Esther has been sleeping alone for 30 days. And what we know about the king is more than likely he wasn't without company himself. Right? And if you remember, there, there's still hundreds of concubines at his disposal, and I don't think he's quite through yet. Um, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 19, I skipped over something so that I could bring it up later now. It's a very strange passage there, where it says this, simply, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the gate. Now, again, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you unless you put it into context. The context is this. This is after Esther has been chosen queen. After a feast has been thrown in her honor, the king is still gathering more virgins into his harem. Some commentators try to gloss over this and say something like, uh, well, he's gathering the ones that have been untouched because he chose Esther to send them back home. Really? Does that really go with what we know about the king? Mm-mm. Does that go with what we know about other kings? Mm-mm. How, many, how many concubines did Solomon have again? How many wives did he have? Uh, clearly, this isn't the romance that we thought it was. Uh, it seems as if the king is hedging his bets against future disobedience from his queen. He's making sure she knows her place in the palace. Yes, he's chosen her, but at the same time, there are other options out there. Doesn't need her. Can't blame Esther for being not overly confident here in regards to where she stands with the king. So Esther conveys this news through the eunuch, who again tells Mordecai. Mordecai responds to Esther in verses 13 and 14. This is one of the most well-known passages. He says these to this. First he says, Do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, if we read those words merely from an earthly perspective, it really doesn't make any sense. Because if she doesn't say anything, she doesn't tell anyone her identity, then she will be safe, physically speaking. And she will survive even if all her people perish. That's not what he's saying. Uh, rather, he's, he's giving more of a heavenly perspective on this matter. Yeah, you can be quiet. You can not say anything. And yet you're still going to perish. Because there's a greater judgment to come than just the judgment that's placed upon the Jews at this time. Again, they had a very strong heavenly perspective. 
the, the progressive theology that's taking place throughout Scripture, clearly they have an, a view of heaven at this time. It, and Mordecai's statement is in line with the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, when he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Literally, Mordecai is saying to her, he's rebuking her. saying, yeah, you can be silent. Yeah, you may survive in the physical sense of the term, but you will die. You will face the judgment because you have denied God. You have denied your people. Again, I, I've told you recently, uh, maybe a couple months ago, Revelation chapter 21. It's a very strange list of people that are given after the new Jerusalem is seen coming down out of heaven to earth. And so we see heaven on earth. It gives a list of sinners who will not be able to enter into this new kingdom, right? And in addition to sorcerers, idolaters, murderers, and the sexually immoral, he also mentions the cowardly and the faithless. He says their portion will also be in the lake of fire, which is considered the second death. Again, believe what Mordecai is saying. Yeah, you, you may survive this one, but you're going to die if you deny God and your people. You will perish for your sin, for your faithlessness, for your cowardice. Hmm. Makes you wonder a little bit, you know, just about our role and again, the times in which we live. Uh, the scripture is very plain about this that uh, you know, it, it's easy to call ourselves a Christian when the world seems like it's okay with Christians. It's when the world is not okay with Christians. Are you still going to say you're a Christian? Are you still going to stand up for what is the truth? Are you going to still stand up with God's people, His church? You see, because I, I do think every time, again, I'm a history major. <laughs> I, I've studied the history of persecution throughout the church. Every time persecution breaks out, probably about a half of the church immediately says, oh, I'm not part of the church anymore. So if you split this room right down the middle and half of you say, I don't know Christ, that's not going to go well. Uh, he, he, he literally says, if you really trust in Christ, you love Him. You will live for Him. And if called for, you, you will die for Him too. Those who, who won't do that, He says, they're cowards, they're faithless. They will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet Mordecai is not trying to manipulate her. I'm not trying to manipulate you either. I'm just telling you what the facts are. In fact, he's not even putting all his baskets, all of his eggs in Esther's basket, if you will. Uh, with great faith in God, that we hadn't seen out of Mordecai yet, he, he firmly believes that the Lord will raise up another deliverer if Esther refuses to obey this command. It's very important that we understand what Mordecai is saying here. And it's an important lesson for all of us. Literally, what he's saying is that, Esther, you are not indispensable. Most of us probably don't think that we are indispensable, but nevertheless, uh, there might be a temptation at times. God doesn't need you to accomplish His will. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need anyone in this room. He doesn't need a single person. At any moment, He can carry out His will in any way He pleases, with or without us, with or without means, with or without instruments, He can carry it out. You're not indispensable. 
If God doesn't use you, He will use someone else or not use any means at all. So we, we can't think too highly of ourselves in this regard. Yes, we live in a particular time. Yes, the Lord may use us in, in important ways. He may not. We're not indispensable. God can use someone else. That should give us what Paul would refer to as sober judgment when we think of ourselves. Not to think too highly of ourselves. God never needs me. Never needs me. I, I remember even my sister when she was dying of cancer. That was something that I was trying to talk with her about, but not. Uh, it's hard to talk to someone who's full of anxiety, someone that you love. You know, um, I remember her saying, "Well, there's no way he'll take me because I have two little girls. One of them was less than a year old." And uh, does God need me? Can God use someone? And God has used another mother to, to care for them. We don't like to hear that. I don't want to say that. But it's true. None of us are indispensable, you see. God can and will use others. But yet, although we're not indispensable, we also are not irrelevant or immobile because God doesn't need us. That's essentially what Mordecai is saying to her in the last statement when he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, perhaps you were raised up for this very particular purpose, to be the one through whom God would deliver his people. Esther, indeed, you are relevant. Uh, your position is important in the royal court. This didn't happen by accident. It's Vashti's sudden demise and your sudden exaltation was not by chance. This clearly is something that is of the divine hand of providence. You are in the privileged position to be the instrument through which God saves. It's interesting though that phrase for such a time as this you know that that's not just the you know the ESV or the NIV or even the King James version. We all sort of use that phrase. And the phrase actually goes back to William Tyndale. You remember who he is? William Tyndale was the first translator of the Bible from the original languages in the Hebrew and the Greek into the English tongue. Uh, he felt that God had a call upon his life for that particular time to give the people the Word of God in their own language. The king disagreed. And as a result, he was sentenced to strangulation and then later to be burned to death. And that did happen. He was accused of heresy for trying to give people the Word of God in their own language. Strangely enough, four years later, the king uh, approves four new translations of the Bible in the English tongue. <laughs> And to this day, all four of those versions were essentially plagiarizing his work. 80% of the King James Version is Tyndale's words. And most of the language that we use in our Bibles from the ESV and whatever it is that you use, also his words. So when we say for such a time as this, we're talking the words of the man who had lived for such a time as this. It's important to understand our history, you see was willing to live for Christ, but also willing to die for Him. Would Esther be willing to do the same? 
That's the question. That's the crucial question at this point. As I mentioned before, Esther is the only figure in the book who has two names. Everyone else has one name, either a Persian name or a Hebrew name. And in this case, Esther has both. Her Hebrew name, Hadassah, meaning myrtle tree. And then she also has the Persian transliteration of the Babylonian name, Ishtar, the goddess of love. But the word Esther, when you translate it into Hebrew, actually means hidden. So again, the question is, is she going to remain hidden? Is she going to hide her faith? Is she going to keep silent? Or is she going to openly identify herself with God and His people and take her stand? Well, we find the answer to that question in verse 16. For the first time, the queen is now giving orders to Mordecai and not just reluctantly going along with whatever he says. She says to him, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. There are two things that I think can be clearly seen from her response here. The first is we see something of her growing dependence upon God and God alone. Second, we also see something of Esther's determined obedience unto God, even if the consequences are not as she would hope. So we see this. She gives a command, tells Moses to gather all the Jews in the city to fast on her behalf. They're already fasting and mourning. Now she's giving them a specific reason to fast. Fast on my behalf as I go and make my petition before the king. Obviously, the assumption is that they're going to make a petition to their king to convince her king to carry out God's will. Now normally, uh, again, uh, Jews would only fast for one day. They normally wouldn't fast for three days. There'd be no reason for that. And they often wouldn't fast for the whole day. Just be for part of the day. Here she's asking them to devote themselves for three days. No eating, no drinking. That's, that's not always easy for people to do. She's saying, I need you to do this. I need your help. I need the help of God's people to pray. I can't do this. I can't do it in my own strength. Now, now notice what she doesn't do. Sometimes it's important to point out what we don't see in the Scripture as much as what we do see. What she doesn't do is she doesn't go to the eunuch who was the favored eunuch who could tell her more about the king's desires. In other words, she doesn't go to him and ask for another night with the king before she goes into the palace. She doesn't try to convince him in that way. Notice also she doesn't spend any time putting on makeup or finding a new dress that would be pleasing to the king. For three days, she doesn't eat a thing. There's no beauty treatments, no beauty rest, no beauty sleep. She probably looks haggard when she goes before him, but she relies completely upon the Lord. Depending on God to show up. If God doesn't show up, she's dead. She's learning to depend upon God, you see. She's not depending upon herself. She doesn't try to woo the king. She doesn't try to manipulate the king. She just looks to God for help. At the same time, she's fasting for three days. This is at the beginning of the Passover. When you're supposed to be feasting, she's telling everybody to fast. Total turning of the tables here, but they are crying out in desperation unto God. You have to show up because we can't do it. Then secondly, notice Esther's determined obedience unto God regardless of the outcome. She really has no idea whether this is going to succeed or not. She doesn't know. God has not told Mordecai 
that he's going to save them. God has not told anything to Esther that this is going to be helpful in her case. But even if he doesn't help, she's determined to move forward in faith, to identify herself with God and with his people. And as a result, we see this, uh, this, this faith that we've seen throughout the Old Testament in so many other ways. Certainly you think of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when, again, they're told to bow down before the idol, uh, the golden idol, and they say, our God whom we serve is able, He's able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And certainly we hope He's going to deliver us out of your hand, O King, but if He doesn't, be it known to you, O King, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship that golden image that you set up. In both cases, either God has to show up or they die. Clearly, it's an aspect of faith. That's what we're seeing here. That's what faith is. The assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. They had no idea. Nothing physical had been given to them. And it's hard for us because none of us are ever going to see perfect justice here on earth. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going to see the judgment of the wicked like it ought to happen. We're not going to see the full reward of the saints here on earth. But by faith, we can already see Christ. By faith, we can already see Him sitting on His throne. By faith, we can already see this new heavenly country in which the world is as it ought to be. And as a result, we act accordingly, working according to His reign and not according to what the, the earthly kings are telling us. It's that faith in the unseen that leads us to obey in light of fearful things. It's by faith that we stand up for the weak and the persecuted. It's by faith that we take on the risk of being Christ's ambassador and telling others about Christ even when they don't want to hear it. Of even being ridiculed and mocked because of it. Sometimes losing jobs losing other things for the sake of the gospel. It's by faith that we act in the place that God has put us, wherever He has put us, in the times in which He has put us. And we think, we, we, we start to think about that. Why am I here? Why am I here in this part of Michigan, in this community, in this particular job, in this particular home, in this particular area and time? What is God calling me to do? It's interesting, in his Bible, Diedrich Bonhoeffer only wrote down one date in his Bible. Most of the time he's just writing notes about what the text means. But in this particular case, he wrote a date down by the Psalm 74, verse 8. It reads this way. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. Then he burned all the meeting places of God in the land. So in other words, the enemies of God are saying we will utterly subdue and destroy them and then they burn all the meeting houses of God in the land. And by that, he wrote down the date 9-11-38, which is the day after Kristallnacht. He says this is what the enemies of God have done. They have tried to destroy God's people and burned down every... Because again, a thousand synagogues were burned the day before. He wrote down that date. And he was at that time, he had firmly decided, Lord, what would you have me do? Why am I here? Why am I witnessing that? What is my role? For such a time as this, perhaps. And yet he too was not indispensable. 
He did play his role. He did stand up for the faith. He did stand with the righteous. And yet he would perish. For he was hanged by the Nazis just days before the end of the war. Clearly Bonhoeffer wasn't indispensable, yet he wasn't irrelevant. God still used him. God still uses him to this day. If you read his biography, it's still an encouragement to the rest of us to know what it is like to stand up with Christ. But he, along with Esther, they're both dispensable. There's only one indispensable hero in this world. That's the story that we tell every week here at church. Jesus Christ, the only one who is indispensable. If he had kept silent and had sought to save himself from harm rather than facing the cross, deliverance would not have risen from any other person nor from any other place. The way Paul explains it, he is the cornerstone of the church. The church could not be built if not for him. He is indispensable. And as a result, salvation is to be found in no one else. There is no other name. There is no other hero that could ever take his place. He has to show up, and he does, and he did, and he will. Not only did he come for such a time as this, he came at the appointed time, the fullness of time, at just the right time, the Scripture says. He laid down his life for sinners. Unlike Esther, who had an entire city of believers praying and fasting for her for three days, he couldn't get his disciples to pray for even one hour with him. Although Esther is sitting in ashes, dust, reminiscent of death, saying, perhaps I'll die, perhaps I'll perish. Christ goes to Jerusalem saying, I'm going to die on your behalf. He's determined to go there, knowing full well that there would be no golden scepter at the end of that path. No one would ever say to him, pardon. He would experience the full wrath and judgment that we deserve. And so that's why it's in the name of Jesus that we preach the gospel. It's in the name of Jesus that we proclaim salvation freely. The name of Jesus that we continue to to present before a fallen world who doesn't want to hear the name of Jesus. He's the only Savior. No other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Paul says, God has highly exalted this Jesus. Bestowed on Him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the one that we trust. It's in His name that we pray. It's for His sake that we live. And it may be for His sake that we die. We go with that understanding. We go with that faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would help us. We are weak in faith, Lord. pray that You would strengthen our faith. We pray that even as we hear sermons like this in times of peace and prosperity, that you would continue to prepare us for what anything might come in the future. Pray, Lord, that we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, that we would 
be willing to stand with God's people, regardless of what they're facing. Lord, we love you. We love your church. We love the truth. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful to the truth as you've been faithful to your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Won't you stand with me? Let's sing together. Be still, my soul.